scripture passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 before we start. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit now to illuminate our hearts and illuminate our minds, give us understanding. Father, we ask that You would deal very specifically and very intimately with every individual heart that's here that is of an age to comprehend what Your Word says. Lord, I pray that You would bring conviction. I pray that You would help us to understand and realize that mere words and mere confessions will not suffice in eternity. Lord, we ask that You would help us to know Christ and to commune with Christ and to love Christ and help us to leave here and preach Christ. Father, we ask that You would be with Your servant as he seeks to expound Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Some of you might remember that last week, Jordan said that we're going to begin a series of messages about the church. Uh, what we would call ecclesiology, the study of the church. And the reason, reason for that is because in this passage that we just read, specifically verse 18, we have the very first reference to this word church. It's translated church in our Bibles in the New Testament. Not only that, but this very first mention is, um, is spoken by Jesus Himself, the Lord of the church. Within these verses, verses 13 through uh, 19 or 20, there is a lifetime's worth of study, of implication, and of application of both biblical and systematic theology. People have given their lives to the study of this word, church. And so we're going to take the opportunity to study the church. In this passage, we have what some would call the most important, one of the most central texts in all of Scripture for 
If we believe that God's intention from the foundation of the world was to save for Himself a people, a bride for His Son, the church, and if the mystery hidden for the ages and revealed in these last days is, is the church, the mystery of the church, then surely the first mention of the word church uh, would, would require us to at least spend a few weeks understanding what it is. As a, as a young church, we've never done a series on the church. We've never sat down and just laid out, this is who we are to be based on Scripture. And so we're going to spend several weeks doing that and talking about the church. But before we get to verse 18, and we study this word church specifically, we have to study the conversation that leads up to that word. And this statement by Jesus when He says, I will build my church. We need to know how He got there and how He asked questions and began this conversation that got him to that point. We don't believe that Jesus just spoke flippantly or just threw out words that he later had to retract. Everything he said, every word that he said was calculated and precise to draw along his disciples and teach them. And so we need to understand everything that he says leading up to that point. And we need to know what Peter said that caused Jesus to say, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon son of Jonah, so we're going to study all that. But before we get there, we have to deal with our own hearts. We have to get our hearts and our minds ready and prepared to understand the church. And we'll do that today by answering the most important question that's ever been asked. And that question is found in verse 15, where Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? Now, we are not strangers to questions. All of our lives, every single day, we are bombarded with questions. How do I look? Where are you going to college? What's for supper? How much is left in the account? Is this the car you want? Will you marry me? When would you like to sign the papers for your new house? Sir, may I have permission to pursue a relationship with your daughter? Have you written out your will? Have you decided on a color for the casket? Every day, for all of our lives, we are bombarded with questions that we have to answer. Question after question. We ask and we are asked questions. Some of the answers to the questions that were asked or that we ask will affect us for two hours. Some of the answers will affect us for three or four days. Some of the, the answers will affect us for 10 or 15 years or 30 or 40 years. And some of the questions will affect those who are left here after we are dead and gone. And as, as important as some of these questions are, none of them even begin to compare with the importance of this question that Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15. Now this message is very simple, this message is very personal, and this message is of unmatched severity. There's nothing more crucial than this. There's nothing more time-sensitive than this question. Now in, the, in verse 13, we find out that Jesus and His disciples are now in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is a Gentile region. This is almost the furthest north that we ever read of Jesus and His disciples going. Now we've gone back and forth, and I've made a point to explain how 
what Matthew is doing is showing us Jesus with the Jewish people and Jesus with the Gentile people. And Jesus with the Jews and Jesus with the Gentiles and how the Jews respond and how the Gentiles respond. But here, in this section, in a Gentile region, Jesus is dealing specifically with His disciples, the twelve. These men who have committed themselves to Him, who've, who've followed Him uh, more closely than anyone, who've, who've been intimate with Him more often than anyone. As Jesus is here making a distinction, a third distinction. There are Jews, and there are Gentiles, and then there are disciples. And He calls them in. And in, in, in a sense, in this little section we're beginning to see, and in moving out as Jesus spends time with His disciples for the rest of His ministry, the sense is this. It doesn't matter anymore where we are. It doesn't matter anymore where you've come from. It doesn't matter the, the type of blood that's flowing through your veins. Jesus calls in His disciples, set apart from any cultural distinction or any ethnic distinction. And He asks them one of the most important questions and He teaches them one of the most important lessons of the New Testament. And again, perhaps the whole Bible. And this teaching begins with a catechism, a series of questions and answers. You study the Gospels. This is how Jesus taught questions and answers. Questions and answers. This was his pattern. And he asked first a question of secondary significance. It's important. We've been noticing rising opposition toward Jesus from specifically the Jewish religious leaders. And now Jesus just comes out and asks his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? What are they saying? That many people are following him. Many of the people seem to like Jesus. Many of the people even believe in Jesus to an extent. So now we're, we're, we're coming down to face the question, what does all of this equate to in their minds? I mean, they follow and they like and they believe, but, but what does that really mean? Who do they say that I am? That when, when you answer that question, that will, that will help you understand why they're following Him. The, the, the emphasis of this question, who do people say the Son of Man is, is the word who. Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a question of identity. And he speaks here in the third person, referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it many times. He, he gets it from Daniel chapter 7. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, uh, capitalizing or, or speaking directly to his humanity. Unless someone would argue and say, well, he's not talking about himself here. In verse 15, he, he rephrases the same question and calls himself I. There he speaks in the first person. So the Son of Man is Jesus. He's asking this question, who do the people say that I am? Not what are the people saying about me? What are they saying about my identity? Who were they calling me? And it's interesting that Jesus already knows that the people are trying to put a label on Him. They're trying to, to give Him a title. And the people here that He's referencing is, I, I believe, specifically the Jewish people. Number one, because the disciples wouldn't have mingled much with Gentiles. And number two, the answers that they give are strictly Jewish answers. So He's asking, what do our people say about me? Or, or, what, or what, do they, what do they call me, rather? Who do they say that I am? 
What is the word on the street? What's the general consensus? What are the latest polls concerning my identity? If Jesus would have asked, what do they say about me? Well, then we would have gotten different answers and that wouldn't have got to the, 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 the focus of this question. They might have said, well, the people say you do miracles. The people say you heal people. The people say you speak as one with authority and not as their scribes. Some people say um, that you're a drunkard. These are all things about Jesus. Those answers are correct if the question is, what are the people saying about me? But they're not asking, he doesn't ask, what are people saying about me? It's identity. And the disciples, interestingly enough, are able to offer up some answers that shows the people really are trying to, 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 to pinpoint who he is. They're actually doing that, and, and the, the disciples are in there listening to what the people are saying, and what we find out from these answers is there's no real general consensus. In verse 14, we have the answer. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Notice this form. Some say, others say, still others. Now this is interesting. Think about this. If I were to come to you and say, who do people say that I am? The answers would be either they don't know who you are or they say you're Paul because that's who you are. You're Paul White. But that's not the answer here. With, with the people, the general populace, they're not satisfied with Jesus of Nazareth. That's not given. They don't say, oh, he's the carpenter's son. That answer isn't given. There's something so unique about Jesus that people are just trying to ascribe to Him something. We can't put our finger on it, but He's something. He's, he's more than just Jesus. He's more than just Mary's son. He's more than just the son of the carpenter. There's something else here. And so they are trying to give Him a name. They say Some say John the Baptist. Now we saw this in chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So some people think this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. It wasn't just Herod. It was, there were more people saying this. John the Baptist was a great man. Jesus actually said, Among those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. John came preaching. and His message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had a baptism ministry. He had disciples, and then he was beheaded, and people are saying, oh, he's come back from the dead. There's no doubt many, if not all, of the disciples of John the Baptist, after his death, followed Jesus, because he told them to. Some say that he's Elijah. Elijah was one of the Old Testament prophets of God. Elijah did have a miraculous ministry. He even raised the dead, and he would proclaim the word of God to the people of God, and they called him the troubler of Israel, stirring up stuff. In Malachi chapter 4, we can read that right quick. The very last prophet, written prophecy before the intertestamental period, this, this time of silence from God, the last thing we read in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now we know that Jesus said that if you're able to hear it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. John fulfilled that prophecy, but many of the Jews believe that this was a literal prophecy. John the Baptist is going to, or Elijah is going to come back, because he never technically died. He's just going to come back and precede the Messiah. Others said Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the major prophets, known as the weeping prophet, because he, he wept streams of tears over Israel because they would not repent. When we ascribe success to a ministry, we say it's successful usually because people are believing and they're following the message and they're repenting. Jeremiah had almost none of that. Almost no success, earthly speaking, in his ministry. Some say one of the prophets, just somebody important. He's something the prophets were known as preachers sent from God. They were known as wise and authoritative because of their office of prophet. And, and the Jewish people tended to hold the prophets in high regard at this time, although when the prophets were living, they hated them and hated their message and they killed the prophets. So the summary of the answers that are given is, is they're not very specific, but they're specifically not messianic. There's no definitive answer. The people give various answers that it equates to perhaps a forerunner of the Messiah. And all of their answers are wrong. They had supernatural views of Jesus. They had spiritual views of Jesus. They had religious views of Jesus. They had high views. They're just not high enough. And so... It's important to understand and to know what other people are saying, but that's nowhere near as important as, as the next question he asks. He's just leading them into this next question in verse 15, the most important question. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? The emphasis of this question is in the word you. Plural, the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And this question was given to contrast the other answers, but, that's what they say, okay, we get it, but who do you say that I am? It no longer matters what the other people are saying, it matters what you say. Jesus is demanding a statement from His disciples concerning His identity. He doesn't ask, what have you seen me do? He doesn't ask, what have you heard me say? He doesn't say, alright guys, let's... let's Tally up. What's, what's your favorite miracle so far? Is there something you'd like to see again? Can I take requests? I mean, what's, what's your best part about me? He doesn't ask that. The question is, who do you say that I am? Now, this is the question of all questions. This is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. Every person in this room must answer this question. You might slip out of here today and fool everyone as to what your answer would be. And you might live the rest of your life portraying an answer that's not really your answer, but you will not successfully, when it's all said and done, in eternity, you will not get by this question. As John MacArthur says, this question pins you to the wall of eternity. It backs us all into the corner and we must answer, who do you say that Jesus is? 
Notice the question is not, where did you go to church? What kind of a church was it? How did you raise your children? How did you read? Or how much did you read of Christian theology? How much did you share the gospel? How did you compare to sinners around you? All of those questions are important, but they are minuscule. They're microscopic in comparison to this one great question. Who do you say Jesus is? Now... We might start the way Jesus started by saying, well, what, what do other people say about Jesus? Who, who do others say Jesus is? And just like in Jesus' day, it's a good question. It will give us some information. And just like in Jesus' day, people in our day have many different answers. See, in Jesus' day, they said, well, He's John the Baptist because, well, Jesus preached repentance. He preached the coming of the kingdom of God. You must turn and repent because there's a new king. You must submit to Him. Jesus preached the same thing as John Jesus had followers. They were all, they were very, very similar. But we've already, I've already pointed out they were also very different. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he's got a demon. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they said this man's a drunkard. He hangs out with sinners. Some said Elijah because Jesus also came, and he stirred up. A ruckus, just like Elijah. He would, could also be known as the troubler of Israel. That's why they had to kill him. They said, don't you see that it's better that one man should die? Than that the whole nation suffer? That all the people collapse under the pressure of Rome? If we just get rid of this man because he's troubling the nation. Jesus also stirred up and roused the status quo of mediocre, self-righteous religion. Again, Elijah never technically died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. Perhaps he's just returned like Malachi prophesied. But Jesus cleared that up. He's not Elijah. John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. Jeremiah, very similar to Jesus. The weeping prophet sounds a lot like he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sounds a lot like he came to his own and his own received him not. I mean, very similar but Jeremiah was from the tribe of Levi. And we know that Scripture teaches that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. They thought he was one of the prophets. He did preach the Word of God. He did call people back to the law of God. He did speak words of judgment over the people. But Jesus was not just one of the prophets. He was the prophet of God. He was the Word of God in flesh. And in our day, people say, you ask him, ask them, who do you say Jesus is? They'll say, well, he was a, a very moral man. Nobody can point out any wrong that he ever did in his life. Some might say he was a great teacher. I mean, he taught great lessons. And if we just put that into practice, I mean, everybody's lives would be better. I mean, come on. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. I mean, that would help everybody. Of course that's good. Some people say he was a great example to follow. He loved and he showed us how to love. Some people would say he's a prophet from God. The Muslims believe he's a prophet from God. They say Jesus brought the word of God to earth. Some people believe he's a miracle worker. They say, well, I mean, we've got the writings. He did things that they're only explainable if we ascribe some type of supernatural power to him. He did it. Now, are any of those things false about Jesus? No. They're all true about Him. He is moral. He is holy and blameless and undefiled. He was without fault. 
perfectly conforming to God's law. He is the great teacher. I mean, who could expound God's Word better than the Word incarnate? Who could apply God's wisdom better than wisdom incarnate? He is a good teacher. He is a great example. John 13, 5, He tells us, I've lived to show you how to live. You do like me. Be like me and, and you'll be fine. He set a great example. He is the prophet from God. He represented God to humanity, displaying the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. And He is a great miracle worker. He came and He took hold of the forces of nature. He took hold of the forces of the spiritual realm. And He done as He pleased. But... These things do not answer the question of His identity. These are answers based on things that He did. These are things about Him. We might add to that. We're, we're Bible-believing Christians, so we might add, oh, he's, he's the forgiver of sins, which He is. We might say He's the redeemer of souls, which He is. We might say He's the way to God, the only way to God, which He is. They're all true, but those answers are only based on what we receive from Him. They're only based on our relationship to Him. That's not identity. Identity is true no matter what relation they have to you. That's just who they are. It never changes. See, if all you can do is describe Jesus based on what He does for you, then it's as if you have a Savior, a Jesus, who serves no purpose outside of you. Before you got here, it was useless. And after you're gone, there's no help. That's not Jesus. That's not His identity. That's purpose. See, we have to know Him in His identity First, before we get to His benefits. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Not know all of the benefits, not know all that they can get from us, from, from the Godhead. They have to know the identity of God and of Christ. Or let's imagine for a second that we ask everybody what, who they said Jesus was, and they gave correct answers. They all answered perfectly correct. Could we then come along and say, what they said, I'm with them? The answer is no. Because this question comes as a contrasting question. It doesn't matter whether everyone else is right or everyone else is wrong. The question comes to us. Who do you say that He is? It doesn't matter what they say. It matters what you say. You have to answer for yourself. You can't answer for anybody else and no one can answer for you. Your answer must be derived from within your own heart. It has to be given to us and has to be answered by us. So, so what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Concerning His identity, who do you say that He is? Think about it. In your mind, settle it. This is who He is. You might say... He's the promised Messiah. Well, that's true, but He's not just something we're waiting for. He's here. He's already come. In light of recent days, we might say He's the, the child conceived of the virgin, born from a virgin womb, in a stable, laid in a manger. No, that's not Jesus. That's not my Jesus. Yeah, He did that, but that's not Him anymore. You might say, well, he's the, the young boy who reasoned with the elders in the temple as a young man. 
with wisdom unlike anything that anyone had ever seen. But then he went on to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God. I mean, that's not him anymore. You might say, oh, he's that kind-hearted man who sat down on the rock and he, he would not keep the children from him, but he allowed them to come and to sit on his knee. Well, that's true, but those children eventually had to grow up and they had to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Just sitting on his lap was no benefit to them. You might say he's the, he's the pardoning Savior who, who would not allow the adulteress to be stoned. Well, he, yeah, he did that. But then he also said, go and sin no more. And he got up and he went on from there. Or if we're really spiritual, we might say he's the man on the cross. No, he came down from the cross. That's not him anymore. He's not bloody and bleeding anymore. You might say, well, He's the risen one who spoke in the garden with Mary. Well, that's not Him anymore because He went and He appeared to His disciples and then He ascended into the heavens. We might say, I know, I know the answer. We might say, He's the rider on the white horse who's called Faithful and True, who has a sword coming from His mouth with which He will strike down the nations. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's true, He is coming again in power and judgment, but we're not just waiting for Him to reign and waiting for Him to rule. He reigns, he reigns and He rules now. It's not just future. See, it's not just past and it's not just future. The question is, who do you say that I am now and forever? It's not just past and it's not just future and it's not just, well, this is how... Jesus applies to me, and this is how He meets my needs. When I realize a felt need, then I run to Jesus to find out how He can suit my needs. See, Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the great I Am, and so He asks, Who do you say that I am now and forever? He's the great I Am. Is that your answer? Is that what you formulated in your mind earlier? Well, then the question is, well, why do you say that? Whatever answer you come up with, why do you say it? Is it because you just read ahead to verse 15 and said, oh, he's the Christ of Son? You saw what Peter said and you said, well, that's my answer. If that's Peter's, I mean, it's obviously right. I'm going to take that one. Is it because the church says it? We as a church have a confessional statement concerning Christ and that's why I say it. Or do you say it because, well, my parents taught me this and, and so I believe it. Just like the disciples, they were a part of a Jewish community. And Jesus asked, what do the people say? What does the, the religious community say? Who do they say I am? We're a part of a religious community right here. We call it a church. And we could very easily sit in this community and say, well, this is what everybody else around me is saying. And this is what I must confess in order to be a member of this community. Therefore, I say this. See, that won't do. Remember, Jesus moves very quickly past the answers of the general populace and He comes to you and says, what do you, who do you say that I am? Now the answer, very quickly, we're not going to look at it in detail, but just notice, Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now why is that important? Think about it. Peter is probably sitting, looking at this man, the disciples have gathered around him. They're, they're looking at him and he says, Who do you all say that I am? And Peter says, You. 
you're sitting here right now. You're talking to us. We see you. We've touched you. We've been around you. You, a man of flesh and blood, a man just like us, a man tempted at every point just like us, you are the Christ, the promised, anointed King of Israel. More than that, it goes beyond that, the Son of the living God. You, a man of flesh and blood, are the Son of the living God. In essence, the same essence with the Father and therefore God. You're God. That's what Peter is saying. You, here you sit, a man of flesh and blood, just like us, and you're our King. And you're our God. Thomas would later say, My Lord and my God. Now what's the big deal with that? Verse 21 Jesus is about to begin to explain to His disciples that He will go on and He will suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And we will see that this is a problem. Here you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're our God, our King, and yet you will suffer? Peter won't have it. The question should come to our minds, how can God suffer? He's not liable to suffering. Our confession puts it very clearly. He is without body, parts, or passions. He cannot be affected from something outside of Him that He created. He can't suffer under anything. So how can God suffer? Some of our our young ones, if you're going through the confession, you'll know the answer. How can the Son of God suffer? And the answer is right before him. Peter's looking at him. Christ, the Son of God, took flesh and blood that he might obey and suffer as a man. The people saw flesh and blood do mighty things. And the disciples saw flesh and blood do mighty things. But the people said, well, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's just setting the stage for the Messiah. But Peter says, you are the promised king. You are God in the flesh. So what do you say? Is that your answer? And if it is your answer, do you believe it? Is your faith in this Christ Do you believe it enough to stake your eternity on it, your eternal soul, and say, all my cards are in. I'm putting everything in. Jesus Christ took flesh and blood that He might obey and suffer as a man in the place of men. He hung on the cross with one hand on humanity and one hand on God, and He mediated that relationship because no man can go into the presence of God, and God can't come down into the presence of men without destroying them. And so He sent Christ. This man suffered under the wrath of God. He died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He sent the gospel forth to the nations. And now here I am, under His authority, Proclaiming His Word sent to shepherd you. And my question for you before you die is, who do you say Jesus is? That's it. If we all settle that answer correctly, then I'll have a successful ministry and we will all go on to have successful ministries. This is the question that we must have clear in our minds before we approach the Lord's table. And remember... His death and proclaim His death until He comes. So I'm gonna, I'll distribute the the elements in a moment. And, and during this time, ask God, pray, 
that He would bring conviction on you if you don't have this answer settled. Perhaps some who have, have, have come to the Lord's table in the past need to abstain for a day while they settle this. That's between you and God. It's nobody's business but, but His and yours. But we must settle this question and have this answer fixed. Who do you say Jesus is? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and I'll begin to distribute uh, these things.